Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. All right. Kirsten, my friend. Yes. So, listener, right off the bat, elephant in the room, um, we didn't have an episode last week. I, unfortunately, was with COVID. <laughs> Uh, and COVID was a part of me. Mm. Um, the test immediately <laughs> had a red line. Uh, there was no 15 minute wait required. The COVID was very excited to announce itself on the test. <laughs> oh, it was, it was sad. Not, not only because I don't like to know that my friends are not feeling well, but you really worked so hard to not have it for so long. Yeah. I mean, I went to COVID's home, a.k.a. Florida. <laughs> I, I knocked on the door and I said, hello, old enemy, I guess. Not really friend. <laughs> I rolled the dice. Um, but I mean, vaccinated, boosted. It was unbelievably mild. Hmm. Well, that is definitely something worth celebrating. Yeah. Just waiting for that negative test to go through so that I can have some sense of normalcy back. <laughs> Which it's weird to think about the post-COVID pre-infection normal. Yeah, it's... um. I read an article that I don't know that it made me feel better, but the title was like, yes, you're going to get COVID again and again and again. Uh. And I was like, well, if that truly means we're like truly, truly in the epidemic phase where it's just a different strain of a flu, like, so be it. I mean, to me, other than like one and a half day of fever and headache, mm -hmm. the the sinus stuff was like no worse than a cold. But again, I know that I was lucky, you know, it's been two and a half years. COVID has mutated down in severity, yeah. plus the vaccines, like, like not, not to say that some people don't have long COVID and it's still a very real thing. I was just very lucky. Yeah. 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 I mean, medical science is pretty amazeballs. It's so great to be back and for none other than episode 40 Four, Four zero. Yeah. I can't believe our little idea <laughs> at the beginning of COVID. I, it was the beginning. I mean, we've been doing this for nearly a year of mm -hmm. released episodes, but yeah. it's been so much longer when we go back to the ideation. Yeah, we first started really in earnest in February of 2020. So just a few weeks before the world changed forever. Um, <laughs> it's unfathomable. Times. It is. So in episode terms, we're middle-aged, but we're almost one officially publicly. And to all of my friends out there, I can't believe you're still listening. <laughs> 
Right? <laughs> I had a friend yesterday text me about something I said in one of the podcasts and how they want to get uh, international McDonald's. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't believe... Because, you know, it's a weird ask to ask your friends to, like, listen to this thing you do. Mm-hmm. But a year later, I can't believe people are still listening. I know. I know. It's the same for me. And I find those folks the most flattering of all because, again, they they know us. So they could get <laughs> this just by texting us. <laughs> they don't have to tune in and listen. But... Yeah, it's really, it's cool. So we're still ideating on our one-year anniversary episode. We haven't made our final decision. And because life has been a hot mess for the last, I don't know, it feels like six months, we're not (laughs) as far ahead as we like to be or as we used to be back in the beginning in terms of planning and recording weeks in advance. So we'll probably, I don't know, decide that soon but looking forward to the one year anniversary episode and a quick shout out to the hundreds of you who listen that we don't know oh totally (laughs) i feel a little safer with you all uh because it's like okay these people don't know me it's fine i don't have to be as self-conscious but uh i mean flabbergasted that you all are also on this ride with us and we're just so happy that you like this little show that we make yeah and you know honestly maybe I shouldn't say this maybe you should cut this but that we both are still finding it really interesting I don't want to say I have a problem with follow-through but I I sometimes get bored and I haven't been bored with this at all. I mean, it's still just as fun and cool and exciting to me as when we recorded the first one. I mean, probably more. A thing that I like is, is like, okay, well, how many episodes can we really do? Like, you know, our topic is a bit more narrow than mm-hmm. some other true crime things. And it's like, it's endless. <laughs> I think it Every is. time we're like having a brainstorming session or even just texting each other ideas about like future episodes, it's like, oh, it's there's infinite. Yes, I really think that's true. Yeah. But, you know, maybe some exciting things. We have some little shakeups in the weeks ahead planned for y'all. <laughs> we'll see how they go. Um, but yeah, it's just, I'm not tired of it either. It's I just keep being interested. And that is really critical I think I I think so (laughs) episode 40 bump bump episode 40 bump bump lordy lordy look who's 40 (laughs) uh yeah fun 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 so we had some housekeeping's the wrong word um, some follow-ups mm-hmm. with previous episodes. Do you think get into them now, get into them after? What do you think in terms of flow? I think let's start with that, circling back to some things that we talked about in, I don't know, the last two or three or four episodes that have either kind of more has happened, more has been released. Um, it feels like what we talked about before, there have been a couple of things that, my opinion has kind of changed or 
you know, I recalled talking about certain things and then thinking, oh, I wish I could kind of add to that what I had talked about previously. Yeah. So maybe the owl in the room (laughs) of the staircase. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Because when we talked about it the first time, we had only um, seen the first episode because it had just been released. And now... I've seen all but one. I haven't seen the last episode. How about you? I haven't finished it yet either. Yep. But this was the one that came to mind thinking that I wanted to follow up because we did the two part on the case itself and we talked a little bit about the show. Um, But again, we hadn't really seen that much of it. But honestly, and it pains me to say this because I love everyone in (laughs) that show. Um, I love Colin. He's my alternate universe husband. I love Tony. She's my alternate universe best friend. But I didn't and I didn't end up really thinking it added much to the understanding of the case. And the storytelling seemed really chaotic. So yeah, it's not my favorite. I am still enjoying i'm looking forward to how they choose to end it like like what their final words are going to be i do think it could have Mm -hmm. been less episodes Mm -hmm. yeah like maybe a little bit shorter could have constrained it a little bit but i just love the actor so much (laughs) yeah i mean i for sure would have still watched it Um, And I will finish it. So it's not that I dislike it. It's just kind of, I'm not sure what it really adds to it. I mean, it definitely tells more of her side of the story. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of it is conjecture too. her side of the story. Because I don't know that she really confided her deepest, darkest thoughts to anyone. Yeah. So, yeah, I for sure would watch it. I would recommend it even. But if you don't know about the case, I wouldn't recommend someone go into it blind. So my husband didn't know that much about the case, and he had a really hard time following the, the timeline. Well, even from the first episode, I, that was one of the things I asked you. Like, I felt like as a viewer only seeing this, I didn't understand the family dynamics mm-hmm. and like whose children were who. And yeah. I, I like figured it was going to explain it, but yeah, I think your husband is that good lens. I mean, honestly, just go back to the staircase documentary minus the last few episodes. You don't really need them. Yeah. I mean, if I were talking to someone who was just kind of peripherally interested and they were only going to watch one, I would say watch the documentary for sure. But I do appreciate the humanization of Kathleen, but I agree with you, like, by its nature, there's a lot of conjecture there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There were a couple of points in it that seemed like new information, or I just missed them in the documentaries. I'm trying to think of what, but I think the information about, the information that came from the boy's birth mother And one of the aunts about what happened with which kids when and kind of er their early life of who they lived with and where they Mm -hmm. moved around to. That felt like new information to me. 
again, maybe I just missed it in the documentary, but, you know, the fact that the boys were initially with the birth mom, the girls went with him when he moved back to the States, but then the birth mom wanted the boys to, you know, all of that kind of moving around. And then that he wanted one of the daughters to be with their mom's sister, and he only wanted to keep the daughter, but, you know, I'm making air quotes, no one can see me, but... Um, you know, that didn't have kind of struggles, um, Mm -hmm. emotional struggles that I didn't know that before. So there was some new information, but hard to follow. Yeah. And I think that would have just been like glossed over in like probably a five minute moment in the documentary. That's Mm -hmm. like, here's a quick rundown of the kid situation. Like it didn't go into that because it wasn't the point. Yeah. But it did feel like in making the point, it was a bit damning for him. Mm-hmm. And and so that side of it never got in. And then, of course, also the relationship between the filmmakers, the original filmmakers and the family. That was kind of new information yeah. as well, or or at least in that much depth. Well, and we got a couple questions from the episode itself which had me re-examining and re-questioning because it was about the gap between um, Kathleen going back into the house and Michael finding her. Yes, yes. And going, you know, going back and researching after we got a couple questions from listeners, it was like, oh, no, the gap is unexplained. Yeah. Like, it never really gets an answer as to those like two hours because it's only Michael's story mm-hmm. and then that gap sends me going back in the other direction of like well he did it <laughs> well you know what's funny is when we recorded I remember thinking of that gap and being confused but then I thought that that was something that in his story changed that his story changed so Yeah, when we got the feedback from listeners that, no, there's a big gap here, what's going on, I then recalled in the conversation we were having about his sexual identity and that there were other things that he could have been doing during that gap that he would have had reason to not want to become public, you know, Mm -hmm. i.e. some kind of hookup or something. And that seems pretty plausible during that time. It also seems plausible that he killed her and he was using that time to do who knows what. Um, Or he just fell asleep from drinking too much and then found her later. Like it's, it's the same thing with every piece of this case. Like (laughs) there's no smoking gun or blow poke that actually gives a satisfying answer in either direction. The thing that I don't understand though, that is more disturbing to me about the time lapse is why the police didn't nail that down. Like, how did this go all the way from investigation through trial, retrial, yada, 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 and nobody made him say what he was doing during that time? Like, that doesn't make any sense. No. The timeline is the first thing that you establish. I mean, (laughs) according to my um, deep understanding of the criminal investigative process from television. (laughs) 
And as someone who does think there's possibility in the owl theory, she would surely have been screaming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, I... It's like there is a hypothetical version where he wasn't home. Right, right. Well, I mean, I don't want to spoiler if you haven't watched it. Um, but did you see the the episode that they went over that theory of the crime? Oh, the owl? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you think of the... Because they showed her in the front yard. That was the part I didn't get was how would he, how would she have been in the backyard and not heard him? I mean, I know the property's big, but, you know, but if she were in the front yard, then I could see her screaming and him not hearing. Although... But it's still full conjecture of like, well, yeah, but who's to say she was in the front yard? No, I know. I know. The whole thing. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, I don't know. I definitely don't see it as this huge miscarriage of justice the way they portray it. I mean, yeah. I also think it's very possible to get microscopic owl feathers in your hair just from living out in the fucking boonies and, like, laying down on your your lounge chair by the pool. Like, Oh, yeah, an owl could have been on that chair. Right. (laughs) You know, like, an owl attack is not the only way to get a tiny owl feather in your hair or a piece of grass or a pine needle or whatever. But it's more so like the potential of the talon abrasions and not having skull cracking. <laughs> Except, did you see the part where... So I guess if you're at all interested, watch both. Because now that I'm like talking <laughs> through it, there were parts that were not in the documentary. But the part where the case came up of the guy who... The other guy he had sex with who was killed... And it was blunt force trauma, and they knew it was blunt force trauma, but his, he didn't have a skull fracture. But how do you, how do you be so good at that? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, how can, like that feels like a crazy ass coincidence. You know, these investigators who have been investigators for decades and they've never seen it, and then they see it with two people who are connected to the same case. I mean. I don't know. Maybe there is a perfect murder weapon that he knows about that none of us know about. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I do think he was a a like bad dude and and up to no good and a narcissist. Whether he killed her or not, he seems like for sure a narcissist. Yeah. Or at least eh, heavily endowed with narcissistic traits. <laughs> <laughs> And we're DNA, not psychologists. Big narcissist energy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the show itself, I wanted to love it, but it's okay. Yeah, I think the structure, on one hand, makes it interesting, but it makes it like less of an enjoyable multi episode mini series. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'm only guessing, but I'm thinking that the filmmakers maybe felt that they had to do that to give it some kind of artistic touch. Because if they had just done it in a linear way, it would have they really just... have the documentary. Yeah, it would have just been the documentary with actors. So, I mean, again, just my guess. But if you're really into the case or you're into true crime, then I do think it's probably worth watching both. But 
as you said, probably not the last two specials on the original documentary. Oh, yeah. Those, I get that there's like renewed interest. There was some new information, but it's like that original documentary is like lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. Watch that, then watch the HBO series, and then re listen to our episodes. And then message us. <laughs> mm-hmm. And tell us what else we missed. <laughs> <laughs> or what other solution you have determined is what actually happened. For sure. What kind of weapon could create that kind of wound? And then another air quotes case to just touch on, because we were talking about it, and we talked about it in a previous episode. So the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial mm-hmm. ended. Mm-hmm. And from the people I see, it really feels as though it's missed that he defamed her too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, I just keep seeing all over the internet these freaks that are so in love with Johnny Depp. They're acting as if he was innocent. Right. It's like, yes, she had to give more money than he did, but they both lost. Yeah. They both defamed each other. They both had to pay each other millions. Granted, Mm -hmm. she had to pay more. Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, they're both abusers, and I don't get this, like, fantasy in which Johnny Depp was vindicated. Yeah. I mean, I think that really is just the patriarchy, right? I mean, men get away with so much more on on average, on, you know, when you take it across the board. And, you know, men's crazy ass behavior is still considered eccentric or you know someone drove him to it or whatever the lone wolf kind of idea you know it's a one-off it's an anomaly he's a lone wolf like all of these kind of explanations that are mitigating factors but a woman acts crazy and that's just it she's bad you know there's no kind of counter narrative to that I think unless you can spin it as she's pathetic and you know downtrodden or um and I think that Amber Heard just has enough kind of backbone and you know whatever her kind of mental state and her behavior she won't play the typical victim she is a victim because she's a victim of abuse And she won't play that kind of narrative that our society allows for our female victims. You know what I mean? Well, and it's just so complicated because I think she is also an abuser. Right. Like, this just happened to be a case where both people were bad people. So this is one that I wanted to come back to because I... You know, the last time we talked about it, I basically said the same thing, like two, two bad people. But since then, I've heard some domestic violence um, experts say that there's no such thing as two abusive people in a relationship, that one person is the abuser and the other person's behavior may kind of escalate to respond to an abusive situation. I just don't know enough about it to speak to that with any kind of understanding. But I just wanted to put that out there because, you know, we don't we don't want to um, 
do any harm to the work of domestic violence advocates or be unwitting kind of supporters of a culture that excuses domestic violence. And I, I don't totally understand why there can't be two abusive people in a relationship. Um, I do think that Johnny had more power in the relationship. He's much older than her. He's very famous. He has a lot of connections and had had at least a lot more money than her. So, you know, there were a lot of factors that set him up as having more kind of power in the relationship. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just want to put all that out there. I don't have easy answers. It's a messy situation. But for sure, I don't understand a, a world in which people walk away and say, oh, Johnny is, you know, he can be our matinee idol again. No, like he's trash. Um, yeah. That was I mean, very he's clear. certainly trash. I think it's just that rare, rare, I mean, these two Hollywood people that are most likely narcissists on some level, mm-hmm. like, I, I don't think they in any way represent regular people. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. But the amount of like, hooray captain jack sparrow is like nauseating it's like are you such little simps for this man and his like role as a pirate once that like (laughs) (laughs) i i just find it so pathetic the hero worship yeah and we're laughing not because it's funny i mean it's ridiculous is what it is it's you know absurd yeah, the man hasn't had a good movie in, like, 15 years either, like... Yeah. I mean, I was never a huge Johnny Depp fan. I don't know why. He's just never really spoke to me. I mean, I guess he's been a good actor in some things, but to me, anyone... And, I mean, maybe we're going to get flamed for this. I don't know. But to me, loving Hunter Thomas Thompson... Thompson. Loving Hunter Thompson is, like, an enormous red flag. <laughs> yes. To me. <laughs> so I think it was when he kind of went down that road that I was like, okay, your your films are not worth it. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. What else do we have callbacks to that, that have been happening? That might be it. Because we don't really have much banter because you literally have been entombed in in your quarantine. (laughs) Yes, I have only been in this room that I continue to be in. But as long as all the tests are negative, that will end in like one day. And I'll be able to freely explore the rest of my apartment. Then everyone can expect our top shelf banter once again. Yes, I'll still be mostly confined to the apartment because of other health stuff, but it will be less than this one bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's not funny. So yeah, looking forward to that. (laughs) I can't think of a fun transition into... (laughs) I don't think there is a fun transition into this one. Should we just jump right in? I think so. I'm still trying to think of something. (laughs) Nope, got nothing. (laughs) Let's just jump right in. All right. I'm going to take a drink. Okay. 
Well, this week, as I'm sure you can tell from the title of this episode, we are talking about the case of the Menendez brothers. Yes. And this is a huge, huge case, but I am really excited to to dive into this one, Andrew, because as I was doing my research, I discovered so many things that I didn't know, and I actually was alive and cognizant when this happened. So the crime itself actually happened on my birthday when I was Whoa. in high school. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of just tell this one free form this time. We don't really need to set the scene. This The scene is modern day Beverly Hills. We're talking about the brothers Joseph Lyle Menendez, who goes by his middle name Lyle, and his brother Eric Galen Menendez. They were born in the late 60s, early 70s in New Jersey, New York, to parents Jose and Kitty Menendez. Jose was a exec for home videos, which I don't know, maybe we do need to set the scene in terms of telling our younger viewers what home videos are and what that <laughs> whole industry was. Um, essentially VCRs and um, videotapes of movies and kind of the aftermarket for movies after they left the theaters. And Jose was a Cuban immigrant who had moved from Cuba in the 50s after, or just as the revolution was starting. And like many Cuban Americans, had family in Miami and the Florida area. Um, but he moved to Illinois and went to college in Illinois, and that's where he met Kitty. Uh, they got married when they were pretty young. They had Lyle when they were living in New York City, and then they moved to New Jersey where they had Eric. Um, but all during this time, Jose's career was really taking off. He started out kind of just working his way up. He trained to be an accountant. By the time the boys were, you know, teenagers, preteens, he had worked his way up, and he was an executive in the recording industry. And he had been involved in signing and doing productions for bands like Duran Duran, my favorite in the 80s, and the Eurythmics. So a big deal. Yeah. Around that time, 1986-ish, they moved to Los Angeles. Jose wanted to get into the movie business. So to do that, he transitioned to the home video industry. The family bought a huge kind of Hacienda-style mansion in Beverly Hills. They lived near celebrities, the rich, the famous. And the boys continued in high school in California. The boys were both very good tennis players, but they were kind of mediocre students. And the older son, Lyle, he managed to finish high school and he even managed to get into Princeton, um, I think partially because of his tennis playing. And Eric was still in high school or finishing up high school. So now we kind of transition into the period right before the crime. The boys, I think Lyle must have been home for the summer. The boys did some burglaries in their neighborhood. I think really just because they could. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't need the money. Both of them were on their parents' credit cards and had the ability to spend kind of an insane amount of money on the credit cards. They didn't have limits. The limit was the limit on the credit card, so $250,000, which... Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. 
is an insane amount of money even now. So, you know, 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, that was just kind of unthinkable amount of money. I'm pretty sure my first credit card limit was (laughs) (laughs) $2,000. So mine was of this vintage, and I think mine was like $200. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think these were just kind of thrill crimes or, you know, just kind of up to hijinks in a way, because again, they didn't need what they were stealing, but they were caught and they were arrested and their father, Jose, bailed them out of jail, kind of used his connections and his influence to have the charges dropped and then paid off the families um, of the mansions that they had broken into to keep it all quiet. So that's kind of what the summer before the crime was like. Mm-hmm. Then on the evening of Sunday, August 20th, my birthday, 1989, Jose and Kitty were in their den, and I, I'm picturing it as kind of an open concept kitchen den kind of area. And I might have missed it, but yeah. I don't remember. I think this might be your first reference of Kitty, just that she's their mom. Oh, yes. Kitty is the mom, the wife, the mom. And so they were they were in the den. I have some reports saying that they were standing. I have other reports that I think are more credible having them on the couch in the den with Kitty having her head in Jose's lap. And the boys came in, well, young men, um, came in and just started shooting. Apparently there was no kind of dialogue. Um, Jose was hit in the back of the head. They used a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun. And, Ugh. yeah, so, you know, I I don't think we have to go into gruesome detail, but a shotgun is, is a kind of weapon that inflicts a lot of damage, um, especially at close range, and, and they were at close range. So the first shot was to Jose's head, the back of his head, and it killed him immediately. Kitty was also shot... But she was not killed immediately, and she got off the couch and was kind of crawling and trying to get away. And this is an important point. I mention it because it comes up later. Lyle, at one point, went to his car to reload, and then he came back in, and that's when he delivered the fatal shot to Kitty again in the head. In total, I think Jose was shot six times and kitty was shot about 10 or 12 times yeah and just as a point of information i looked this up because i i didn't know this the type of shotgun that they used um holds eight cartridges so when they went out and reloaded it was eight shots but they each had a shotgun so each of them had eight shots and then lyle went out reloaded came back and it came out later that Lyle was the one that delivered the so-called kill shot to both of the parents. But both of them were involved. Both of them shot them. Yeah. So, again, we're just sticking to the facts at this point of what happened. And we'll get into kind of different versions and all of that later. Afterwards, both of the, both of the uh, men reported that they stayed thinking that the police would 
come because of all of the noise and the shots. But the police didn't come. So at that point, they determined that they were going to go and give themselves an alibi and essentially try to get away with it. So they changed. They took showers, cleaned up, got changed. They took the shell casings and the guns with them to get rid of them. And they went to the movies. That was going to be their alibi. And they went and then they came back. They said that they were going to attend another event, but they needed to come home to get money or get something from the house. And that's Mm -hmm. when they, you know, quote unquote, found them. And then at that time, they called 911. And I think there are recordings of, of the call, but you know, they were distraught. They were crying when the police came. One of the, one of the men was on the front lawn weeping and kind of hysterical. The police investigated and initially the police suspected a mob hit. And the reason for that is because of the overkill involved in the crime. Mm-hmm. With Jose, again, the initial shot killed him. And we don't like to go into gory detail just for the sake of gory detail. But I think it speaks to the nature of the crime. And and it comes up later when we start talking about motives and things like that. Um, The first shot killed him. And reports say that the first shot nearly decapitated him. He was that close with a shotgun. So the next five shots were just overkill. I read some reports that him especially was shot in the kneecaps and possibly Kitty as well. And then Kitty was shot 10 times. Now, if you've ever used a shotgun or been hunting and know what a shotgun does to a target or to an animal, you know, it's kind of inconceivable. 10 shotgun shots to a human at close range. So that is why the police initially fought mob. I think also, you know, home video, I, I kind of explained in a joking way, home video, the aftermarket for movies after they leave the theater. But another big part of home video in the 80s was porn. And Mm -hmm. the distribution company that Jose worked for apparently had some connection to that. And so there was a theory that maybe there was some mob involvement with the the porn part of the business. So this was kind of a working theory from the beginning. One thing, though, is in the immediate aftermath, according to some... The men were acting not how you would expect people to act after finding their parents brutally murdered in their home. Yeah. So part of this was they kind of went on a a so-called spending spree. They bought Rolexes. They bought Porsche. They bought adjoining townhouses. And Lyle, the older son who went to Princeton bought a restaurant in Princeton that was a kind of a student hangout place. The other son, who was the better tennis player, hired a $60,000 tennis coach. And so they started spending. And this raised some eyebrows. There was also some behavior around the time of the funeral. They just, you know, according to some sources, didn't seem sad, didn't seem like they were grieving. There were even reports that they were talking about what they were going to do after the funeral when they were in the limo um, on the way to the funeral. So just, you know, some things like that were starting to percolate. Seven months later, 
based on some information that they had, but mainly based on information that came from the ex-girlfriend of Eric's therapist. Mm -hmm. She came to the police around that time with a recording that she had, I guess, stolen from her ex-boyfriend, who was Eric's therapist. And it purported to have a confession from Eric on that tape. So based on this, the police kind of shifted their investigation more towards the brothers. Now, I'll come back to this. And they were already on the radar, but the police really didn't have any hard evidence. You know, just acting not yeah. sad after your parents die is not is not a, a crime. And so they eventually got the therapist to record both of the brothers confessing on tape. They were arrested about seven months after the crime in 1990. So they had been free for, you know, a good period of time. And they were indicted in December of that year. Which isn't a confession to your therapist confidential, as long yeah. as you're not showing signs of hurting, a, like doing more crime. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. But apparently it came out in later appeals and motions. So they were indicted in December but of 1990, but they didn't actually go to trial, I think, until 1995. And that's because of the fight over whether those would be admissible or not. And from what I could find, it sounds like at a certain point, one of the brothers, I can't remember which one, became threatening to the therapist. And at that point, he br- he violated the patient... That know. still seems risky if it's like, I'm violent to you because you're going to the police and working with the police to violate this confidentiality. Well, and that's why it was in court for a very long time before they ever went to trial. So we can talk about that, the admissibility of it. But in that original trial, they were both indicted at the same time. They were put on trial separately. So they were not tried at the same trial. They each had their own juries, their own judges, their own everything. And during that trial, the defense that the brothers mounted was self-defense. So how could you claim self-defense, you might be asking? They revealed for the first time publicly at that point that their father had been sexually abusing them since they were young children. Mm -hmm. And according to their defense, in the weeks leading up to the murder, Eric had finally come to Lyle and let him know that it was happening to him. So according to their defense, both of them, it had begun at an early age. For Lyle, it started at six and went until he was eight. For Eric, the younger of the two, it started when he was also young, um, probably about six, which is when Lyle would have been eight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the way pedophiles work is they kind of have an age at which attraction sets in. Um, So when Lyle was eight, Eric would have been six. And then at that point, it started with Eric and it stopped with Lyle. With Eric, however, according to their defense, it continued until 
the time of the murders or right up until then. So Eric confided in Lyle that it had happened to him and they decided to join forces and they confronted Jose and Kitty and said that they were going to go public if the abuse didn't end. Mm -hmm. At that time, according to their defense, Jose got threatening and threatened to kill them on multiple occasions if they went public. So again, according to their defense, they became afraid for their lives. And at that point, they found out that Jose had rifles that he kept locked in his bedroom. So again, according to them, their father is sexually violent and has been Mm -hmm. for, you know, over a decade. He is threatening about keeping the secret. He threatens to kill them if they go public with it. And then they find out that he has weapons in the house. So at that point, they both travel to San Diego and they purchase these shotguns. So they now each have a shotgun, which they have for their self-protection. They're afraid that their father is going to kill them. On the night of the murder, another discussion of this happened, according to them. And their father went into his study or something and closed the door, which was not his habit. And so this fear that he was going to do something or that he was about to do something kind of kicked in. They went, they got their guns, they came back and they just started shooting. But that they were in like immediate fear for their lives. Not right that moment like he was holding the gun, but they felt that he was plotting to kill them basically. Yeah. So that was their defense. Now, in those first trials, most of that evidence was admitted, was was deemed admissible and was heard by both juries. And what's really important is, and I didn't know. So again, I lived through this. I remember this was a huge, huge case. It was everywhere. And I'm sure you'll go into that in your section. But... It was also really carried in the media that the sexual abuse was kind of a joke. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, they're making this up. And I really absorbed that narrative. And I'm ashamed to admit that I believed it, really. And to the extent that one of the prosecutors, I can't remember which brother, one of the prosecutors in one of those first trials said in open court that a man cannot be raped because he doesn't have the equipment to be raped. Mm -hmm. And the other one basically said, didn't say it in quite that way that it's not possible to rape a man, but basically said, you know, this is, it's bullshit. It's made up. They did it for the money. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't know, but was readily available if anyone cared to kind of read the details of the case was that their own aunt Jose's sister knew of the abuse because her son the boy's cousin had been told about it by the boys when they were young Mm -hmm. and she knew about it um he knew about it so the cousin testified a different cousin testified the aunt testified So there were people in the family who knew about it and confirmed it and testified in court 
that not only did they know about it, but these were things that the boys had told them when they were very young. So not, you know, six months before when they've hatched a plot to kill him, but when they were eight, nine, ten. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And the boys went into great detail over what exactly the abuse was. And it was horrendous. I won't go into detail. It's out there if you want to know more. But I do think that kind of in society at large, people kind of put child sexual abuse into different buckets of severity. And it's like, well, some quote, I'm doing air quotes, sarcasm quotes, you know, molestation. So just some light touching and, you know, and people kind of act as if that's less bad somehow. But to be clear in this case, even if you're someone who believes that there's kind of a benign way to molest a child, this is not that case. Like it was brutal and horrific. Yeah. So both of the first trials were um, were hung juries. The, the juries could not agree on a verdict. Immediately, in both cases, the prosecutor announced that they would be retrying. So they didn't review the facts. They didn't nothing. It was just immediate. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just this was such a lightning rod um, in the court of public opinion. So this is one of the very first cases that was the trials that were shown live on court TV, which was still relatively new. So again, you'll probably go more into that, but, you know, people were watching prosecutors were kind of, you know, making careers over this as defense attorneys were as well, but it was announced immediately that they would retry them. So when they did retry them, it was together. They were tried together with one jury hearing both. In this next trial, the judge was very different and really did not admit a lot of testimony about the sexual abuse. Yeah. So, so much of that was kept out of the second trial. There were other differences as well. But in the end, one of the biggest ones was that the judge didn't allow the jury to consider manslaughter. So after, you know, another lengthy trial, both of the brothers were convicted of first degree murder. And after a sentencing hearing, so both brothers were convicted of first degree murder. And after a sentencing hearing that took place a little while later, they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. They were spared the death penalty, which was on the table in California. And part of part of the evidence of the sexual abuse was allowed in in the sentencing hearing. And that is probably the only reason that they were spared the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So That sentencing didn't take place until July 2nd, 1996. So almost a full seven years after the brothers killed their parents, they were sentenced to life in prison. Now, if we go back and we look at that, that seven years, all that time, they're out there living. And, well, not all of that time. The last four of it, they were incarcerated while the trials were happening. But 
up until that time, they were kind of out there living. And again, they were spending, you know, they were showing up in pretty stereotypical 80s kind of high fashion. So neon sweaters and popped collars and Mm -hmm. Rolexes, and they just didn't come off as very sympathetic. And I think if we think back to the 80s and the, you know, the me decade and Reaganomics and every kind of class struggle, capitalism on roids kind of thing going on here. And so even, you know, within the context of that time, they're coming off as pretty Gordon Gecko-ish. Yeah. Esh. Esh-ish. Esque. Esk. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... None of the juries, the first juries and the the jury in the second trial, they were not sequestered. So they saw all of this and they saw the media calling them, you know, spoiled brats and all of that they saw. And ultimately, how could that not impact kind Mm -hmm. of their view of them? So those are kind of the, the key factual elements of the case. But Again, the thing that really shocked me when I went back to this is just how incredibly fucked up this is from the standpoint of victims' rights and understanding that they were victims. And the prosecutor to this day says that she was 100% sure that they made this up. But... Again, there is plenty of testimony from Jose's own sibling. I mean, yeah, you know, that this is true. And Kitty knew and Kitty ignored it. And by the end, she was kind of in an alcoholic drug stupor over it. You know, I mean, just a real mess. Um, mm-hmm. There were, you know, Kitty soccer coaches who talked about how kind of crazy and overbearing and perfectionist he was. Um, So even outside of the sexual abuse, he was emotionally abusive. I mean, Mm -hmm. just kind of a really terrible situation. And then I think when you look back at their behavior in that summer before where they're breaking into mansions and stealing stuff, when we look at that through the lens of kids from a really troubled home, it begins to make a lot more sense, you know? Totally. The thing is, you know, I think people have this idea of victims of childhood sexual abuse and incest that they're going to look like Oliver Twist, you know, and they're just going to be all shriveled and pathetic. And it's like they were victims of childhood sexual abuse slash incest and they were spoiled rich kids, you know? I mean, that is also true. They were a product of their upbringing. And many family members testified that this so-called spending spree that they went on after the death really wasn't a change. Again, they both had, they both had, um, you know, child versions of their parents' American Express cards, which had a limit of $250,000 on it. Yeah. They were known to kind of live the high life And that was just kind of who they were and how they were raised. So, you know, they're they're taking a beating in the media over this kind of lifestyle that they lived after the death. But that was always their lifestyle. And that was the lifestyle that the parents wanted and, you know, provided for them. 
the prosecution, though, and, and, you know, kind of the way that they made their case was that the motive was money. And they wanted the money. Maybe they thought they were about to be disinherited or they wanted, you know, more access to it. They had a lot of different theories, but they didn't really have any evidence. But when you take all of that time of them in the media being obnoxious rich guys... Yeah. And then this idea of, oh, they wanted their parents' money. Then they kind of came up with this circumstantial motive that the second jury, without a lot of the really graphic testimony about the sexual abuse, kind of bought. And it's like they already had the money. Right. They already had the money. But, you know, they claim that they were about... they. They either were about to be disinherited or they thought they were. But again, there was never any evidence for that. That was just their speculation. Yeah. So, you know, in looking back at this case, I'm so glad that we decided to do it. One, I think it's something that, you know, our younger listeners or our international listeners may not know that much about. They may know the name because it would be hard not to, but they may not know that much detail about it. But also because I feel like in my own mind, I had it so completely backwards. And, you know, in doing the research for this, I pulled a lot from an article by a journalist named Robert Rand. And you're going to talk a little bit more about this, but he was one of the first journalists to be on the case. He was Mm -hmm. in Miami. He was reporting for, I think, the Miami Herald. And they wanted to do, I think, the kind of Cuban-American angle. And so he went out to interview the brothers before they were publicly identified as suspects. And so he got really incredible access to them. And he talks at one point in, in this article, and we'll link to it in the show notes, that he spent you know, about six hours one day talking with Eric and he met the aunt and, you know, really got a look behind the scenes. And he's the only journalist who attended all three trials. Uh huh. And then he continued reporting on it, essentially for the last 30 plus years, he's been reporting on it. At one point, he wrote a book and he had 900 pages. He's done so many original interviews with all different people, you know, roommates at Princeton of Lyles, all different people. At one point, he was subpoenaed by the prosecution to testify because some of the evidence was evidence that he had uncovered through his interviews. And so in reading through his article, just, you know, the overwhelming feeling is that if this happened today it would have a completely different outcome because our understanding of incest and childhood sexual abuse is so different. And how victims of this kind of violence and trauma behave, you know, and totally what comes of that. And so I think that he is still working on trying to uncover evidence that will be, um, justification for another appeal or a retrial Mm -hmm. so they did appeal and they went through the state process and basically they just hit brick walls every step of the way what what they need now is new evidence yeah because they've exhausted all of their appeals yeah yeah so i mean we can talk more about it but 
one little kind of bright spot in this, if you see them as victims, as, as I do now, they were separated immediately after the trial. Mm-hmm. And Rand, this journalist, reported in, in this article that I read that he felt like this was done out of spite almost. They were separated immediately and taken to different prisons mm-hmm. and were kept apart for over 20 years. It wasn't until 2017, after the publication of this art, this huge article that he did for Playboy around that time, and then... I think a six or eight part series that was based on that article and and his book draft that the prison system finally allowed the brothers to be moved to the same prison. Now, they had been appealing and and trying to make this happen for years. Every year Mm -hmm. they would put in the request and every year it was denied. After his information came out, it was finally granted. So I think in 2018... Uh, they were finally put in a prison. So they see each other at mealtimes and during, um, you know, the exercise time. But for 20 plus years, they could have no contact with one another except by mail. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm glad we dove into this one. To me, they were just kind of like punchlines because mm-hmm. I was a child. Like, yeah. I wasn't aware in real time. And then it was just sort of like that legacy of like, oh, the Menendez brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like when we even chatted about this, and I don't know if we chatted about it on the pod or just offline, we were talking about doing this one. And I, we talked about, am I making this up? I feel like we talked about one of them being married or both of them being married. And I was, I said something like, oh my God, like who does that? Who marries these people, you know? And now, I mean, it's just such a a surprise to me that again, I lived through this. I was kind of quasi aware of it. I've read about it many times and there's so much information that I didn't know. And really that this is such a, a really sad, sad case. Sad all around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> well, do you want to hear about kind of the pop culture side of things? Absolutely. So unsurprisingly, and probably for a lot of the wrong reasons, the Menendez brothers have been a staple in pop culture. It like The trial itself was a pop culture milestone. Like you said, it was one of the first to be televised gavel to gavel on court tv and millions watched so i don't know about trial of the century especially like one year before oj but like huge Mm -hmm. and like you said like especially with the retrials and losing all of the sexual abuse i hate to say teeth but like the teeth, it, it was like the whole defense was so neutered by mm-hmm. the judge. And yeah. then having prosecutors, and I'm sure like late night comics, just making nonstop jokes about sexual abuse. It's just insane. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Rand actually mentioned in this follow-up article, or maybe he has a great website too. He mentions that 
he's not entirely convinced that there wasn't some collusion between the judge and the prosecutors to essentially secure a conviction to save face the year after the OJ. So the first trial happened mm-hmm. the year before and the second one happened the year after that the second trial wasn't some kind of, you know, cleaning up the public image kind of thing. Which I think that's a piece, the more we dive into this, and then plus just the realization of 2022 at this point, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. like, you can't trust cops, you can't trust prosecutors. I mean, not that you can just trust defense attorneys either, but like, this air quotes perfect system is so unbelievably fucked all the time yeah yeah so like of course that could have happened mm-hmm. but kind of keeping it in uh the non-fiction zone so it was the court tv frenzy and then in the year 2000 court tv had a show called Mugshots, and they did menendez brothers blood brothers Mm-hmm. Um, in 2010, A&E did a documentary actually about Eric's wife that was titled Mrs. Menendez. So <laughs> there's, it, there's a lot of information there, kind of, I saw about Eric's wife, which is pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. 2025, Barbara Walters Presents American Scandals featured the Menendez brothers mm-hmm. in an episode entitled The Bad Sons. Mm. which again you hear that i mean obviously yes it's sons that killed their parents like of course it's (laughs) like the easy go-to of like the bad sons the bad sons but you never it's never about the bad parents right right the rape and torture and sexual assault of your children like it's only the bad sons who wanted money they were Mm -hmm. so spoiled Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm uh, 2016, they were featured in Snapped. 2017, Truth and Lies, the Menendez Brothers. That same year, HLN launched a new series, How It Really Happened. And they did an episode called The Menendez Brothers, Murders in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And that one featured a telephone interview with Lyle from jail with Chris Cuomo. Mm-hmm. In contrast, in late 2017, A&E aired a five-part documentary called The Menendez Brother, Eric Tells All. And this was sort of Eric's version where he was doing telephone interviews about the murders. And that had, like, never-before-seen photos and interviews with prosecutors, law enforcement, close family, friends, medical experts. In 2020, BuzzFeed Unsolved featured The Menendez Brothers. And most recently in 2021, they were subject of ABC 2020 special Inside the Menendez Movement. And mm-hmm. so this special features the what could be seen to some as bizarre a popularity that the brothers have found on TikTok. Mm-hmm. So it's a growing number of young adults and young supporters, both inside and out of the United States. And that was kind of news to me. So I went looking into it and apparently last year court TV posted, okay, this is so fucked, but (laughs) court TV posted (laughs) the entire trial on father's day weekend (laughs) and it led to these two TikTok factions. So true crime folks and anti-sexual abuse folks. So these two groups both joined forces and support of Eric and Lyle 
Mm-hmm. So on Instagram, there's like at Project Menendez organized a letter writing campaign organizing California Governor Gavin Newsom to commute their sentences. Oh, wow. Um, a change.org petition went around. It got over 115,000 signatures. And, you know, the premise hinges on the sexual abuse defense, which, like you said, in 1989, those defenses were rare in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their testimony was dismissed as legal tactics by greedy con men. Mm. You know, like you said, the retrial, that like whole defense was so neutered by the judge. And like now in our post Me Too, like our 2022 lenses. Yeah. It's clear that something horrible was happening there. And Mm -hmm. excluding that from the trial, clearly they're guilty. Like they did the murders. Yeah. But excluding that from the trials it, it is really a miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And they don't have any appeals left. Right. Well, I read one quote that said they're killers, not murderers. And I think, you know, we're just not that good at nuance, I think, in in this country anymore. But that's the crux of it. I mean, they definitely killed them and they admitted that they killed them. And when it came time to arrest them... Eric was actually in Israel playing tennis and he came back willingly. You know, they, they never tried to evade capture or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then an interview I saw with Robert Rand, he was talking about the brothers are very aware mm-hmm. of I fans is such a weird word, but like, yeah, Supporter. I don't know what else to call it. Supporters. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Eric even released a message on YouTube um, responding to their questions and well wishes. Like, it really is a very interesting place that TikTok Mm -hmm. has sort of found itself in this intersection. That's so fascinating. Yeah. But sort of switching back to the more traditional culture, there's countless books so a very non-exhaustive list but some of the top sellers were the menendez murders the shocking untold story of the menendez family uh the killings that son the nation hung jury the diary of the menendez juror uh blood brothers the inside story of the menendez murders the private diary of lyle menendez in his own words so just a fascination with the crime in a way that it it like shouldn't have been so surprising to us. Yeah. The yeah. reality of the crime, because it seems like the reality of a lot of this nonfiction doesn't get into the whole story. Yeah. So then sort of shifting over to fiction, a lot of TV movies, uh, 94, there was Menendez, a killing in Beverly Hills from CBS. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same year, Honor Thy Father and Mother, The True Story of the Menendez Murders, another TV movie. Again, a third 1994 movie. Um, The Menendez brothers were loosely depicted in the crime film Natural Born Killers, Mm -hmm. which, you know, directed by Oliver Stone, starring Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., Tom Sizemore, Tommy Lee Jones... The film tells the story of two victims of traumatic childhoods who 
became lovers and mass murderers. Mm-hmm. And so loose inspiration, obviously not a direct yeah. retelling. Mm-hmm. But that movie was a big success. It grossed $110 million against a budget of $34 million. It received mixed critical response. Some critics praised it, the plot, acting, humor, combination of all of the above. Others found the film overly violent and graphic. And it's also notorious for its violent content and inspiring copycat crimes. Mm, So much so that it was named the eighth most controversial film in history by Entertainment Weekly. Really? Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of folks who really liked this movie who went on to commit crimes so causation Mm -hmm. correlation but still yeah and then another one that was interesting to me uh 96 is now cult classic the cable guy Mm. the black comedy starring jim carrey directed by ben stiller the menendez brothers and the media frenzy are parodied in one of the trials that are happening throughout the film Mm. Interestingly, or at least interesting to me, the film was written by first-time screenwriter Lou Holtz Jr., who had the idea for The Cable Guy while working as a prosecutor in Los Angeles. Oh, interesting. And I'm assuming son of the Lou Holtz. Possibly. Notre Dame coach. (laughs) Random. But yeah, like, ultimately the Cable Guy side of things, he just had the idea of seeing, like, a cable repair person in his mother's building late at night. Mm-hmm. And, like, that was, like, oh, well, what if there's, like, a scary <laughs> version of a cable guy? Um, yeah. But, yeah, the crimes, the frenzy, the true crime, all of that, he was a prosecutor at the time. So interesting. So it wasn't quite as successful as, like, other Jim Carrey mega hits, but it grossed over $100 million and it was a solid hit. Wow. And aside from its cult status, it's also attributed to helping Jim Carrey pursue more serious roles that led mm. to The Truman Show, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's one of Jim Carrey's favorite movies. And then just last bit of sort of ripple effect. The song Standing Outside a Broken Phone Booth with Money in My Hand by alt-band primitive radio gods gained popularity for its appearance in the film and it Mm -hmm. reached number one on the billboard alternative songs chart and number 10 on the billboard top 100 oh wow so just another ripple of culture Mm -hmm. but taking a step back in 2017 the menendez brothers were featured in the lifetime movie menendez blood brothers interestingly just a bit of stunt casting kitty was played by courtney love in that Lifetime movie. So then moving over to the small screen, we interestingly start and end with Law and Order. Mm. So in the year 1990, the first season of Law and Order had an episode, The Serpent's Tooth, that's loosely based on the Menendez case. Um, The next year, season four's episode of Jake and the Fat Man, titled God Bless the Child, appears to be based on the Menendez killings with the son and daughter of a shipping magnate killing him and their stepmother so they wouldn't lose their inheritance uh jumping forward in 2008 season three of 30 rock there's a plot point where tracy jordan makes multiple references to the menendez brothers as he fears his own children will attempt to kill him for his wealth uh 2010 the menendez brothers were referenced in the long-running cw show supernatural 
And then in 2016, the Menendez brothers were mentioned several times in the FX drama The People vs. O.J. Simpson, American Crime Story. Mm. Which, of course, I mean, we'll cover at some point. No time soon. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> based on the true story of O.J. Simpson's highly televised trial, the series was set at the same time as the Menendez brothers' trial. And there are several characters who worked in the brothers and OJ's respective cases, like Robert Shapiro, Lance Ito, Gil Garcetti. Um, Shapiro, who was played by John Travolta, even mentions Eric in episode two, stating, quote, in fact, I arranged the surrender of Eric Menendez from Israel, end quote, which was an actual speech by Shapiro um, Mm -hmm. during Simpsons' infamous Bronco chase. Mm. So... Those are deeply entwined in reality Mm -hmm. and in public consciousness. Yeah. But sort of lastly in TV, in 2017, NBC aired Law & Order True Crime, The Menendez Murders. And that was the one you mentioned, Kirsten, um, Mm -hmm. based on Rand's reporting and writing. And it was an Mm -hmm. eight-episode special from the Law & Order franchise. It depicts and details the killings, investigation, arrests, and trial. Mm. And compared to its predecessors, the series portrays the brothers much more sympathetically, focusing on the defense lead lawyer, Leslie Abramson, and the physical and sexual abuse allegations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Lyle was portrayed by actor Miles Gaston Villanueva, who received a Best Actor nomination at the 33rd Imogen Awards, and Eric was played by actor and singer Gus Halper. Hmm. It premiered at the Paley Center for Media. It was attended by Lyle's family and friends who praised the series and the depiction of the brothers. And an interview with just horrific human Megan Kelly on Megan Kelly hmm. Today after the first episode premiere, uh, Lyle revealed that the series was painful to watch, but that the depiction of him was surprisingly accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, And then in the 2018 Primetime Emmy Awards, the series made its entry with a nomination for Outstanding Lead Actress, which was for Edie Falco for her role as Abramson. Mm. Mm. And lastly, just a bit of trivia for your next true crime dinner party. The Menendez brothers are seen in the background of the 1990-1991 NBA Hoops Mark Jackson basketball card. Yeah, amazing. They just appeared to be sitting courtside. In 2018, eBay began terminating auctions in which they were listed. But you can still find the card on eBay just with some creative Googling. (laughs) So with that, it kind of covers the extent of the small but mighty pop culture side of the Menendez case. Yeah. But outside of that latest Law and Order piece, I mean, none of them really get into what I now understand to be a lot more of the reality of the case. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I feel pretty ashamed. I mean, I've trained as a rape crisis counselor. I think I've mentioned in previous episodes that incest um, runs in my family. Can you describe it that way? I mean, not like it's genetic, but there's incest in my family. I am a survivor. Like, I feel very ashamed to admit that I had this so wrong. And it's just from not digging deeper or questioning the narrative. And 
some of it is just like you said in this post me too you know it really highlights how differently people thought about things um Mm -hmm. you know 20 30 years ago and i think you know i've read different things from male survivors that people still believe that it's not I don't know if they believe it's not possible to rape a man, but that that's kind of false, you know, a false narrative or that it's not as bad somehow or, well, I mean, even when you look at the narrative today of female teachers, like, right, right, right. It's just such a, like, it's no surprise at all that male victims of abuse are so underreported. Yeah. It's like a real shame. And, mm-hmm. like, truly, I had no idea this even factored in to the Menendez yeah. case. I just, my peripherals, and again, I was really young. Yeah. But, like, my peripherals, even into adulthood, was like, oh, they were rich guys who killed their parents for money. Yeah. That was it. That that was what I knew of the case. It was kind of that punchline, kind of like the 30 Rock punchline. Like, oh, I hope my kids don't murder me for my money, like the Menendez brothers. Right. Well, I mean, I knew about the sexual abuse allegations, but I, you know, I was a teenager. I wasn't someone sitting and watching the trial on court TV. So probably everything I knew about it, I got from people or whatever. And I knew about them, but I bought the narrative that it was just made up to get, you know, to get off. But If it were a civil case, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but if it were a civil case, to me, the evidence is strong enough. It would have held up in a civil, you know, there are pictures of them naked, sexual pictures that were presented at trial. Like, it is a fact that. Well, and it it, was strong enough to have hung juries in two separate trials before the judge and the prosecution decided that wasn't a worthy argument. Right, right, which is bananas. So, you know, I mean, to me, this is just, it's pretty sickening. And if they had been convicted of manslaughter or, you know, I don't think they probably ever would have gotten justifiable homicide because their, you know, their their lives were not in imminent danger. Yes. Um, but <clears throat> if they had gotten manslaughter, they for sure would be out by now. Um Well, because it doesn't seem like there's any risk in a repeat offense at all. Right, right, right. And this many decades in, like, like, they for sure did it. They for sure covered it up. Like, it's not that they're just innocent. Mm -hmm. But for them to spend the rest of their lives in prison just seems absolutely wrong. Right, totally. The other thing is Lyle has actually started up a support group for survivors of sexual abuse in prison and is really active with that. And to me, you know, we talked about this a little bit when we covered um, the Parker Hulam case and one of those women kind of went on to live a life of penance and we kind of talked about whether Mm -hmm. we thought it seemed sincere or whatever. But, you know, that's a pretty long time to continue an act, especially once you've already been convicted and you've exhausted appeals. 
why would you keep up with this act that you had been sexually abused by creating a support group if it were all just an act? I mean, yeah. none of that makes sense at all. You know, so I'm not saying that, you know, that they're not, they weren't spoiled. They were. I mean, you know, there's no doubt about that. But that was how they were raised by their parents to be that way. They were, you know, they lived in Beverly Hills. They ran in a fast, wealthy crowd. That was their mm-hmm. life. You know, they didn't know any different. And, you know, both things can be true. To me, this is a big case of both and. Totally. And I mean, honestly, if I had been sexually tortured by my dad and like my mom didn't give a shit to stop it for 15 years, would I be happy that they were dead? Probably. Would I be enjoying the fuck out of their money? You betcha. 100%. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, there's that side of it too. Like, would I have gone to that extreme? I don't know. And I don't think anyone can know who hasn't been sexually tortured for 11 years. But Mm -hmm. would I have been sorry they were gone? I don't think so. No. So super interesting case. And honestly, for me, really humbling and kind of, in my mind, points out the importance of covering cases in the way that we do because there's so many narratives out there and pop culture ripples that are bullshit. I feel the same way. I would have, even I think when we suggested it, it was like, yeah, we can cover them. It was a big trial. Like, it was not with any of the knowledge that we have now. Yeah. Um, So I'm just glad that we did. And I know, you know, for like the 200 or so (laughs) folks that listen, like, hopefully we can help spread the the reality that the narrative is kind of bullshit as well. So I'm really glad we ended up covering this one. So much, so much. Well, with that... uh, well, I'm sure we have resources in our episode note. I mean, this talks about a lot of sexual yeah. abuse. There, There's pieces there. And as always, we just appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 